This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. He helps us pan for the gold inside ourselves. You need to have grit. I mean, a lot of this is grit. I feel like I've been made a better lawyer. They're talking about something that's real to them. You have to be really careful not to be Goliath. They saved a bunch of lives and changed society forever. But let's just begin the conversation. Welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation, your source for guidance to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your practice. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, I have my partner, Sonia Rodriguez, and uh, we've been asking y'all to send in questions, and a lot of people have been wanting to know more about, you know, yeah, people talk about trial, 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 and all our CLEs are about trial, but 90-something percent of cases settle. So how do you win your case in the pretrial, especially in depositions? What are things that we can do to help win our cases in depo and then lose our cases in depo if we're not careful? So uh, Sonia and I were going to try to answer those questions by talking about that. How are you doing today, Sonia? I'm good. Thank you. So Sonia, uh, what do you think about that? I mean, we spend so much time on trial prep, and we don't talk nearly as much about depo. Well, I think that you can absolutely win or lose your case. Um, with a bad with a, with an excellent deposition or a great deposition um, so preparing for depositions is critically important yeah and what is it one thing you know we see a lot of people good and bad on the other side what do you think the biggest mistake you see our opponents sometimes making in uh, when they're doing depositions well one of the things that I think defense counsel do um, poorly is not properly prepare their witnesses for depositions and um, we know when that happens when you ask a question and that witness has a deer in the headlights or suddenly starts falling into the I don't know I don't know I don't know and you know eventually it starts making that witness look really bad and it frankly is just a reflection on how poorly they were prepared for the deposition by the opposing counsel yeah, I find that often we know the the documents produced by the defense much better than they do. We know the medical records much better than they do. And we just catch them in things that, frankly, had they prepared the witnesses better, they may have had a better explanation for. Now, I think what we're doing is we're catching them in the truth. Right. And that's a good thing. But it's just amazing how many times I've seen a de- defense lawyer walk into a trucking deposition, confident as can be, having no idea that there's going to be a bunch of log falsifications, that there is going to be a bad driving record that they missed because they didn't order the proper kind of motor vehicle record on their own driver, uh, all kinds of regulatory violations. They just haven't looked for them right. uh, before the deposition. I guess maybe because a lot of plaintiff's lawyers are equally lazy and don't, you know, don't go do the digging. Well, I think, too, what you find is sometimes uh, your opposing counsel is so busy uh, with tons of other cases they don't even know what they themselves have produced in cases. You know, we've get uh, a lot of cases nowadays where they'll produce a CD with thousands of pages on the CD, and unless uh, the defense counsel has gone through them uh, very carefully, he's not going to have prepared that witness, or she's not going to have prepared that witness uh, to answer those questions that are going to come out of nowhere. Yeah, I've even seen that happen at trial. We're pulling on an exhibit, and they're saying, "Objection! Where'd that come from?" I'm like, "Well, Your Honor, they produced it. Look at the Bates number on the bottom." And right, and right. They turn red, and you know, we get it in. 
So what is what are some things you do to not be that lawyer, to not be the person that's not prepared uh, to ask the right questions? Well, one thing that I always like to do to pre- when I'm preparing for a deposition is I like to look back at my jury charge to find out what it is that I am trying to gain from the testimony. And it's always a good fundamental to go back and look at your charge to, to figure out where in the big scheme of the story you're trying to tell this particular witness um, comes in. And, you know, you, hopefully you're not taking depositions for the fun of it. You're taking a deposition for a purpose, to, to fill in a puzzle piece of the puzzle that you're putting together. And so I like to look at the jury charge. I like to scour the defense counsel's uh, production, um, find any nugget of information. I love looking at footnotes and fine print and the back of pages to see what it is that, that most lawyers might miss. And, uh, you know, the reality is now with social media, I go and find everything I can on the person that I'm deposing on social media, on LinkedIn, who their friends are, what companies they've worked for, if they worked for a previous company, finding their previous company's driver manuals, policy manuals, anything that might somehow uh, uh, be some way to authenticate a, an authority coming from this witness is always a great um, get. Yeah, I think another thing that, and you had some success with this uh, last week, is also networking amongst plaintiffs' lawyers. I know we're really good at sharing things. A lot of other firms are good at sharing things, and you know, getting people's prior testimony, prior admissions, prior reports from experts really makes a huge difference. It really does, and um, you know, some of the best depositions I've ever taken were thanks to, you know fellow trial lawyers who would save those depos- the old depositions were willing to share them and you know there's nothing uh, more embarrassing for a witness especially a paid witness to be cross-examined by contradictory testimony that they gave five years ago or 10 years ago or 17 months ago yeah like the one you did last week you had a defense doctor who said all these things is how it has to be pre-existing you can look at them right and tell the person doesn't need surgery and it couldn't be for the wreck but then you got their deposition on a case where they were the treating doctor and they said the exact opposite. It, and it was pretty embarrassing for the doctor. I mean, I guess, you know, he's he's busy guy and he'd forgotten that he'd testified on behalf of this 60-year-old woman with degenerative, you know, disc disease. And in that case that he testified in, he'd actually made a surgical recommendation um, despite the fact there was no apparent... Uh, visual trauma on her spine, mostly degeneration, and he related in that case to a car wreck. And it was pretty hard for him to back off of that once he had uh, that deposition in front of him. But if it wasn't for another lawyer at another law firm taking the time to send you a copy of the depo he took five years ago, we would have never got that great testimony. Right. And I think that that's also a testament to um, lawyers collaborating and sharing because uh, if you're the kind of lawyer who shares information and gives freely of their time and input and energy, then when you ask for help and advice, it'll come back to you tenfold. So. Absolutely. So I hear different schools of thought on deposition length. I hear no people say, well, like in Texas, for example, we have six hours and that you need to take the full six hours. Other people are 
not into long depositions and pride themselves on how short they are. Do you have any thoughts on that? I always wish I could, one day I want to grow up to be the lawyer who can take a short deposition. Um, it's just not in my, it's not in my style. I tend to be exceedingly thorough, which drives opposing counsel mad. And um, I just find that I can't walk away from the deposition uh, feeling satisfied unless I've covered, you know, a lot of ground. And, you know, I always tell myself that ultimately the jury is not going to hear all of that. It's just going to be um, much shorter because you don't want a jury to sit and listen to hours of testimony from a witness. It's going to bore them to death and it's going to do all of the things that we hear the jury consultants say that we don't want jurors to do and, you know, be side sidetracked. Um, but what I find is uh, lots of times when I'm taking a deposition, I'm not just doing a trial uh, deposition of a witness. I'm trying to prepare in advance to a summary judgment response, or I'm trying to lay the groundwork for what I need um, from another witness. So my depositions tend to be a little bit longer, but um, I do them thinking in advance that I know I will edit them down for the jury. Yeah, and I... I'm probably on the other end of the spectrum. In general, I pride myself on short but thorough depositions. Uh, but it really depends on, on the witness, on the subject matter. Right. Uh, if I'm doing a deposition in a trucking case where I've done hundreds of them, uh, I can do a shorter deposition because I, can, I know what I'm looking for. I can go through all the documents. I will have my theory of the case. I will find out, okay, like we don't have a driver qualification issue. They did this right. I don't need to ask about this. Right. Oh, we have something in the logs. I need to ask about that. Uh, there is a danger, though, I found, which is uh, Mike Leeserman and I guess the Zen Buddhists talk about having a, what's called a beginner's mind, where you know you try to go in there with a the mindset of you don't know anything, and you're asking the questions as if you don't know anything because that what they call the curse of knowledge, the you know it, the defense lawyer knows it, the defense witness knows it, the jury doesn't, and you're talking this jargon and the shortcut stuff, and you don't explain it. But I, I think, but then again, when I do a, a witness in a new area, or maybe someone that hasn't been deposed before, and an expert, I'll tend to take a longer deposition because I'm still learning. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, like you said, the purpose. I mean, I, I look at, you know, you don't just say, I'm going to take a deposition to take a deposition. You think, why am I taking this deposition? Right, right. So one is, okay, I may have some areas where I think we've got them and I want to nail them down now. I don't want to wait till trial. And that's something we'll talk about in a minute. But so I want to nail these things now, now before they think of it and find an excuse and try to weasel, weasel the way out of some, some good liability facts. Right. Uh, it could be that there's just something I want to know. I don't know what the answer is and I want to ask. It could be we know they're going to file a dispositive motion or I know the company policy is going to back up what our trucking experts going to say and I want to get a good quote I can use for that or a good quote I can use in my opening. Uh, so it really depends on what the purpose of the deposition is. But I think you're totally right on going back and, and planning that out in advance. You know, my biggest pet peeve is someone says, well, let me get an outline for this kind of witness. And I see it all the time on listservs and I see the defense lawyers doing it all the time. They have these big, long outlines and they're asking all these irrelevant questions. It right. takes forever. Right. And what I think the real danger of the outline is 
when they're because they're just going through everything they're outlined, they don't listen. And sometimes when you're talking to somebody, the word that's not said, like, wait a minute, there's something here. There's something that I wanted to talk about. Or a little word slips out your eyes if you're listening carefully. Hey, there's something here. Right. I think. But that if you're just following an outline, you miss it. I think that that's especially true um, if you tend to be more of an intuitive person and you can put your pen down and listen to the witness when he's answering or she's answering your questions. It's very subtle, you know, eye movements and posture changes when they're answering questions can tell you that you've got to follow up on something. Um, and so what I like to do a lot of times when I'm taking a deposition is literally put my pen down and sit back in my chair and really genuinely give that witness my full attention. It makes them, I think, feel a little bit more at ease and more comfortable talking. And sometimes you get really good testimony if you put your outline aside. What I do to try to keep myself on track is I don't um, do very well with outlines, but I like to keep an outline of the documents I'm gonna use. So I have a stack of documents that form, you know, it's, it's very similar to having your PowerPoint, you know, your documents that are gonna trigger your questions as you go along. So I like to have all the documents that I'm gonna ask about. Sometimes I'll find that the document's not relevant and I'll toss it on the ground, um, but it helps to kind of have an outline of where you're gonna be heading. Um, not a form outline you just need to be prepared to abandon where you know your template yeah what i do is i try to create a custom outline for the deposition but it's kind of like so like mallory always says your outlines are useless to anybody else because no one else knows because i'll have like key areas that i want to ask about and then quotes from documents with you know some way to identify what the document is that i want to ask about but I don't look. At, I like. I look at it once, and then I'll start. To, then I don't look at it when I'm questioning somebody, and then I just take that conversation wherever it leads naturally. Mm -hmm. And then when they when they come to a pause, and I'll go look. I'll check off what we've covered, and I'll go back to what we haven't. Right. But when you're just blindly following that outline, I think you can miss so much that would show up in a natural conversation if you're actually listening. And we've all seen uh, young defense lawyers who are asking our clients questions based on a very tight outline and you know, breathing that sigh of relief when they just moved on to the next question when they should have asked a follow-up. Absolutely. And I, I had a case we were able to turn into a fatigue case because we were talking to the driver about his cell phone, and he kind of made a little slip like which phone or something, and it turned out he had his regular phone that he always used, but then he had his other phone he used he didn't want his wife to know about that he was talking to his girlfriend on after his wife went to bed till 1 in the morning every night. Uh, and then he, didn't, then he had to get up at 4 something for, for work. And, you know, that was one of the things that he made, like, a little slip, and I caught it, and I followed up, and he's like, oh, yeah, well. And all of a sudden, you know, it just totally turned a case around. Yeah. And he didn't have any intention of telling me that when we started the depot. Uh, but when we listened carefully for those nonverbal, those, I guess, subtle verbal cues and look at the face for those little ticks and right. tells, you can see where to follow up, and sometimes people tell you the truth. It's so much like a poker game. I mean, you're just reading demeanor and facial expressions, and, and uh, if you're not naturally intuitive, then I think that's even more reason to put your pencil down and your, your outline aside and um, pay attention to what the witness is saying. 
Another thing you talked about this earlier is the jury charge. And, you know, I'd always heard people say that. And for years, I'm like, why do I need to look at the jury charge? In Texas, we have a broad form submission. So it's like, were they negligent? And as a definition of negligence, and then what are the damages? And so I never really saw the point of doing it until we started doing it recently this year. And it's just blown my mind. It's like, it really does focus you on, you know, what part. What am I proving with this evidence? Why am I even asking it? Jim Branton was a huge, huge proponent of keeping your jury charge, you know, um, at your fingertips at every stage in the case because it it helps you um, stay true to the story you need to tell. And when you've pled things like gross negligence, it reminds you that with every single witness that you're deposing, you need to be trying to get those nuggets of information that are going to help you prove that one element. Um, And it also keeps you um, honest. And as you're developing your case and you need to go back and drop the negligent entrustment claim or drop the respondeat superior claim, I mean, you're, you're... keeping your jury charge in front of you throughout the life of the case so that you can go back and modify it as you go. And just for the, because we have listeners all around the country, Jim Bratton was a legendary uh, Texas trial lawyer, former president of Texas Trial Lawyers Association that you worked for for years and years before we were lucky enough to, or you were partners with actually, before right. we were lucky enough to steal youth from that firm. <laughs> yeah, he, he was a great mentor and, um, you know, one of the lessons that uh, that I learned was to keep the case as simple as possible, and, and that was, you know, relying on your jury charge to help you chart the path for, for the trial or to the trial. Another thing that we've had a lot of lively debate on, at least within the firm, and I hear other people talk about, is the idea of going for the kill in the deposition. Uh, then just cross-examining the heck out of somebody, getting you know, getting everything you can, versus if you know the witness is going to be live at trial, uh, saving things for trial. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I think you have to take that uh, strategy decision on a case-by-case basis, not just um, whether you know the case is going to go to trial or not, but whether you know you need to settle it or not. Um, Obviously, if you know that you've got some problems in the case and you have every intention of settling that case, then you don't need to be saving any nuggets for another day. You need to pull those out and and get them on the table. If you've got some dirt on the witness or you know something that is going to significantly change the defense counsel's evaluation of either liability or damages, you know, you want to get it out in the open sooner than later. Um, if you, I've always, when it comes to case evaluation, I've always looked at depositions as a way to help the defense counsel see the case the way I see the case. So if there is um, some information that I think I can get out of a witness that I want the defense counsel to include in his or her report to their carrier, I definitely get that out sooner than later. I don't see a value in saving it for trial unless I know for sure that I don't want to settle the case and I want to surprise, you know, defense counsel in front of the jury. Yeah, I've gotten really back and forth in this over my career. When I was a baby lawyer, my first boss said, 
the matador does not tell the bull how he's going to kill him. <laughs> and so I was taught in a deposition that the person's going to be there for trial. It's not a trial depot. You get their story. You lock them into things that you want to use against them later, and you go home. Uh, and I did that for years. Uh, but then I've realized sometimes, you know, when the moment's right, it is good to get them. Now, the problem is, and, you know, especially with experts and really good corporate witnesses, if you cross someone really well in the depot, they'll often be prepared and have an explanation for it by trial. Uh, and so I am, you know, again, I think it's really situational. Mm -hmm. When I want to get a case settled, let's say, you know, we're at one number they're at another number so we've been making progress i have a depot coming up well i want to go make them write a report that's going to cause their number to go up and might not right. have to go down as far so then i will go in and do a true trial cross mm -hmm. if i have a case where the number we're so far apart that i know that this case is not likely to settle then i'm a lot less likely to go you know show my cards right well i do think too though it's really important to uh appreciate where you are in your development of the case you may have a slam dunk piece of evidence um but you're taking a lowly uh employee you don't want to reveal that you've got this evidence right in that deposition you want to save it for the corporate rep or for the next witness or somebody higher up the food chain so you know i think you've got to uh, plant your um your documents and your evidence and your your um hot documents you know based on the timing of where you are in the case yeah and i do think the reality though is a lot of times we don't have control over what witnesses are going to be where and you know for gross negligence in most states you have to prove usually at a higher level like the like vice principal or managerial level you know conscious knowledge of a danger and disregard of that danger uh, and you usually aren't going to get the corporate officers or managers to come in live during your case in chief and you can't hold it for cross because mm -hmm. then you've had a directed verdict and you've lost your gross negligence claim so often the reality is you have to do a real cross mm -hmm. and you know it's a real disadvantage because the they always know your plaintiff's going to testify at trial and so they get to do these long boring depositions and then get every little nugget and then cross your client hard for the first time at trial if they can help themselves whereas we often have to go in cold and you know do the discovery and then kind of take a little break just to look at our notes and then do a trial cross because we might not have that witness there during our case in chief and these are facts that we need to prove we can't right. wait until cross i have a question how do you decide whether or not you videotape a deposition? What's your thought process when you're trying to determine that? I like to videotape as many depositions as I can because just like Michael said, if, if they're not gonna be there, I think it helps the jury to read their demeanor. Um, so th there isn't any deposition that I can think of where I wouldn't want to videotape it unless I know I'm going to be <laughs> deposing a really pathetic sympathetic you know character that you know I, I don't want the jury to to uh, fall in love with my default is to always videotape the only exception I can think of is if it's the rare event when I depose a defense witness which for me is a fairly rare, rare a defense expert which for me is fairly rare and I will talk about that in a minute 
but let's say I wanted to post somebody just because I'm trying to get the information to make a, a Daubert challenge and I don't plan on because I want to cross them live in front of the jury I don't plan on doing a full cross my always fear with taking a defense expert deposition is I'm going to take a discovery deposition and then they're going to turn around and do a trial direct and I'm not going to be prepared to do a trial cross so what I will occasionally do in that unique situation is notice a depot without video uh, and then if they cross notice it by video then I know it's coming and I have to prepare my trial cross because right. I typically don't want to do my trial cross on an expert prior to trial because they're, they're the most slippery mm -hmm. and they will find every way they can to get around whatever admissions you get in your depot by the time they get to trial. Uh, so that's the one time when I wouldn't video. Other than that, I think almost always, if it's worth taking the depot, it's worth videoing. If anything, if I had to choose, I'd do a video and not a court reporter, which you can do in most states, right. rather than the other way around, because the video is so much more compelling. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've been in trial when we've had to read deposition testimony of the record. It's not particularly compelling. Right. The only other way I would think about doing it would be, let's say I had an eyewitness who was either the manner of speaking or the appearance uh, let's say I had like an eyewitness to the wreck who had like gang tattoos all over his face <laughs> you know or something like that that I might consider well maybe having another person read this in the courtroom would be better right uh, you know I knew it the other side didn't so I noticed it by you know uh, without video stenographic only but like I said rare, rare situations I mean, normally yeah. it's better to have the video because there's so many moments and I can think of one. We're in a trial, and uh, I'm trying to think what we asked him. It was like, you know, were you on your phone? And he was, uh, no. But it was like, the transcript pause. just says no. But in the video, you saw the guy pause, look up. It took him like 10 seconds to answer the question. Right. Tell his lie. Right. But you couldn't tell that. And, you know, we, we got that 10 second clip and we played it about 10 times during closing. Right. Uh, you just don't get those moments. Uh, you don't get some of the you know, some of the crazy things that happen. Also, I think some witnesses will misbehave more when there's not a video, especially experts, though. I think having a video there, too, also keeps defense counsel uh, from misbehaving sometimes. Yeah, because it shows a lot. You know, the transcript does not capture uh, tone of voice, attitude. And frankly... They get a, they get words wrong all the time. Mm -hmm. The court reporters. I mean, they do their best. It's amazing they can do as much as they do. But they get some pretty important things mixed up sometimes, and it's nice to have the video to show that they got it wrong. So, experts, what do you think about deposing the other side's experts? I'm not a big fan of deposing the other side's experts. Um, number one, I think it helps to have them locked down to their report or you know what they've disclosed and sometimes you are opening the door for last minute additions to the opinions if you've deposed them um, I just don't like the opportunity I mean you're basically giving the other side an opportunity to do a free trial I mean a trial direct of their expert so I just generally don't like to do it I generally don't like to do them either and one, usually there's so many prior depositions of experts and prior trial there's testimony so much of experts. you can find out there, yeah. Yeah, that you have everything you need anyway. The, and then you just can't help yourself. Like some people say, we just go in there and get their opinions in the basis and go home. 
because if you cross them at all, you're just going to give them the practice. They're going to get used to how you are. Uh, but then I'm worried if I ever just go and what are your opinions, what are the basis for your opinions, what are your qualifications, and go home, someone may just play that and not bring the expert, and then there's right. no cross. Uh, so that's you know kind of dangerous. Uh, the only exceptions would be sometimes you know when there's uh, they've done testing. Sometimes when they've done an accident reconstruction, you need to ask them like what photos, what measurements, and you know it's not quite all in the report. We have to do it. But even then, I just try my best to uh, to focus on not doing the trial cross there in there. The only other exception is if I know I can nail somebody, and we're you know we're getting close to settling it, and I'm trying to push the, push them over the edge. Sometimes we'll do it. Right. But a lot of times we really, for whatever reason, a lot of defense lawyers I found they want to do their experts by video, and we end up having to do. But it's really like a trial cross, but on video. Right. And those opportunities, you were talking about you wanting to see their file and their photos. I had a, a case, an accident reconstructionist several years ago, who um, we were doing his trial uh, depot. And while he was being asked questions by opposing counsel, I was sitting there looking at the photos that he took of his inspection of the scene. And for some reason, all the photos were just kind of laid out on the table and the, his photos fell right next to the police photos and clear as day you could see that the skid marks that he had measured and relied upon weren't actually there on the date of the wreck oh that's awesome and so it fell in my lap literally but just having the experts file splayed out on the table um creates an opportunity for you to get a, another look-see at how they're looking at the case and why. Now, one area where we often have to do trial depositions is with treating doctors because it's hard to get doctors to come to trial, um, especially surgeons. Even if they want to come to trial, they get called away a lot. You know, how do you think doctors in general do treating doctors as witnesses? Well, you know, it's definitely based on their experience level so you get a baby new doctor who's going to be very tentative and nervous about expressing his opinions or her opinions and then you've got doctors who are so experienced that they are coming off as arrogant in their depositions so there I think you see a, a full spectrum but generally speaking I think anytime you've got a doctor expert they're going to be confident and sometimes overly so. Yeah, I think the plaintiff's lawyers and bars, we're at a bit of a disadvantage when it comes to doctor depositions because we generally have doctors that are treating patients and they focus on being a doctor and treating patients, whereas the other side tends to have the doctors that, for whatever reason, other doctors aren't referring them patients and so they're making their money testifying in lawsuits and they take classes and they practice and they're much better at the testifying part. Uh, because frankly they don't have as many patients because they kind of suck as doctors just, mm -hmm. excuse my language but that's kind of my experience every every defense doctor that I've ever done when we've sometimes it takes years of research and background but there's always some reason why they're not doing medicine full-time <laughs> they're spending so much time reading medical records and trying to keep patients from getting justice it's because nobody will send them the business they didn't go to law school to, I mean, I'm sorry they didn't go to medical school to do that right uh, so, you know, some things I found that helps with treating doctors, one problem I've found is they'll get the record and they'll just start like, you know, doctor, did you do a history? Yes, I did, and they'll just start reading the whole record, you know. <laughs> and, you know, really 
the more visual things they have to work with, the more it slows them down. So, you know, medical illustrations, we tend to do, you know, on a surgical case, an animation step-by-step -step showing how the surgery happened. But even cases when you can't afford that, just go to Google Images and find step-by-step. -step. Uh, and I find that that slows them down. Same for the physical exam. I mean, yeah, maybe they'll spit it all out and I'll start slowing down. Wait a minute, you did uh, a straight leg raise test, doctor. Is that right? Yes. What is a straight leg raise test? You know, can you show us how it's done? I think Why that's do you do true. it? You know, and then you, but you got to slow them down because they'll just spit it all out and then they'll use terms that make no sense to the jury. They'll talk so fast the jury won't get it. So I think it's really important to, to use those visuals to let them communicate. I think that, you know, if we as lawyers can remember that doctor experts are human beings and they like to talk about things that they are good at or that they know well, um, and you can softball the questions that you want them to uh, talk about, you know, walk me through a surgery. Right. And they can become human beings again and you know you can see them enjoying the discussion about this great procedure that they did and it kind of uh, as long as you can remember to go back and get them to explain the terminology um, you can humanize them and really get them invested in in the testimony and if you don't they'll just they'll be looking down reading from a record that the jury doesn't have to read along with them and it will be incredibly ineffective testimony right right and I think you know visiting with the doctor in advance making sure that she knows exactly um, the goal of the deposition and, and you know the, if the goal of the deposition is to humanize the plaintiff or the goal of the deposition is to uh, educate the jury on this complex procedure, the goal of the deposition is to compare a before and after MRI, um, you want to make sure that the doctor is aware of what the goal is. Otherwise, they're going to just feel compelled to just read their records from beginning to end. Yeah, I agree. If you if she'll meet with you, and, right? Uh, you know, I often find I pay five hundred dollars to have a meeting, which ends up being five minutes right before the deposition. After I've sat in the waiting room for an hour and a half, right? And these are supposedly the people in our pocket, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> but that's our life. Uh, but you know, by and large, they're good people. They're just busy and most of the doctors that are treating our clients aren't doctors that are wanting to spend a lot of time talking to lawyers or doctors that are busy treating patients and so you know we really are kind of a thorn in their side but you know we you know luckily our clients are mostly seeing good doctors who you know they don't like dealing with us but they uh, give good care to the patients so one area that I personally am not very good at is getting our own clients ready for depositions I just personally just my borderline ADD or something kicks in and I have trouble with the patients you're a lot better at it than I am what are some things that you think are useful to getting a client making sure our client doesn't lose our case in depot and that's always the big fear every single lawyer who presents their client for deposition uh, is terrified that they are going to lose the case because of something that their client says and so after 20 years of doing this, I've found that what works for me is to put myself in their shoes and, you know, ask myself, how would you like to go in for a root canal? Because I'm sure if, when you tell the client that they're going to be going in for a deposition, that's the first thing that comes to their mind. They're, they're thinking, oh, gosh, I'm going in for what, you know, is probably worse than a root canal. 
And um, if you know that your client is going to be fearful and anxious and nervous about something, the best thing you can do for them is to uh, help them become comfortable with the idea of it. They're never going to be completely comfortable in their, their deposition, but they have to be comfortable with the idea of it. And so in my experience, that means making sure that they know the technical aspect of it, what it means, what it will be used for, the significance of it. I always remind my client that not only is it the defense counsel's one and only chance to get to ask them questions, but it's also um, an opportunity to, to present themselves in front of the defense counsel for their report to their carrier. So I want to remind them that if I'm buying and selling a car and my client is the car, I want the car vacuumed and shined and buffed and looking as good as it possibly can. And they always gets a chuckle out of my clients, um, but the reality is the more they know about why they have to be a part of this process and how it will be used, the less fearful they are. And so I think that that helps. Um, I always think it's funny when clients want to know. Uh, if I can tell them exactly every question that they will be asked. And so obviously that's impossible to do. But when clients are most fearful is when they don't understand the significance of a question that they're being asked in a deposition. For example, I had a client once who panicked when she was asked for the name of her supervisor and she had no idea why her supervisor's name was important in the case. Well, maybe there had been something going on between her and her supervisor, but she didn't understand the significance of it. So after her deposition, now when I am preparing my clients for their depositions, I remind them that they may be asked things like the names of their supervisors, the names of their neighbors, the names of their former employers, and it's nothing to be afraid of. Uh, we live in Bear County, and I had a client who was once asked for the names of all of the family members that she has in Bear County. If she's anything like me and she had 51 first cousins, that would be a long list. Yep. And she was annoyed and angry that she was asked, you know, how invasive, how dare you ask me for the name of all of my family members in Bear County. But once clients appreciate that the reason that we need to know that is to see if there's going to be any... Uh, potential jurors who are related to you um, they're kind of okay with those questions so preparing the clients in advance I think are is important in getting their comfort level where it needs to be you know one area where I see clients trip a lot up a lot is you know the difference between how they remember things and what doctors wrote down in the medical records and you know you can prep with somebody but someone cannot most human beings cannot memorize exactly what their complaints were on every visit, exactly what their pain level was in every visit. I mean, it's just not humanly possible, I don't think. And I think it, it helps a client to know uh, that the defense counsel has all their records and has studied them and has maybe hired nurses to do medical chronologies. And so I sometimes, without forcing my client to leaf through their records, I will show them a peek at the gigantic stack of medical records that have been accumulated in their case so that they can see and appreciate visually 
that there's no way they could know all the answers. And so if they don't remember, it's probably better that they say they don't remember as opposed to saying affirmative yes or no, because even if they don't remember, the defense counsel has a long chronology. You know, the other thing I do is, you know, when a client fails to remember, let's say, the wreck they had a year before, or, you know, their back pain they had a year before, uh, it, it kills their case. Because if you have a wreck a year before, you can explain that. That's not a problem. But if you lie about it, or appear to lie about it, it's a big problem. So I always remind them, they're not asking you these questions because they want to know the answer. They're asking you these questions to see if they can make you a liar because they already know the answer because there's a, there's databases out there and, and they know more about you than you know about yourself before right. they ask you the first question. So, you know, trying to encourage them not to try to hide things because they don't, people aren't even necessarily liars. They just think that's what they're supposed to do. They think that they're supposed to overstate their case. They're supposed to minimize the past. And, you know, whereas brutal honesty really gets you a lot further in this right. business. And I do think, too, it's important to um, prepare your client well enough in advance. To I like to prepare my client far in advance of the deposition. And you prepare them, and then you meet with them again the morning of so that they've had some time to process. I always tell my clients that they have a week's homework to do. And so when we meet before their deposition, I ask them to, if they did their homework. And part of their homework is going through and, and trying to articulate their injury and what they've been through. But some of it, too, is appreciating that it's okay to not have all the answers. In my experience, my clients have, are always so helpful and they feel like they need to give an, a, a specific answer even when they don't know or they don't remember, they just feel so compelled to give an answer that sometimes they give the wrong one, or they give, you know. Yeah, they guess about time, speed, distance, when they don't, they weren't sitting there with a stopwatch, they weren't measuring, and they really messed things up. Right, and so I tell my clients all the time that this, their deposition is like a game of go fish. And so you remember the card game, go fish, and it was like, if you have an eight, Yes, I have an eight, and you give up your eight. If you don't have an eight, you tell me to go fish. And so I tell my clients, if I ask you for a seven, you don't say, well, no, I don't have a seven, but I have a six, seven, and eight, and <laughs> you know, here you right. go, I've got a straight almost. You don't do that, you either say, yes, I have a seven, and you give your answer up, or you say, no, go fish. Yep. The other thing I think that we need to do, and, and we've been getting better at, and I see a lot of plaintiff lawyers not doing, is making sure that we have equal information to the defense when we're prepping our clients, which means spending the money. It's not very expensive to do an ISO claim search on your own client so that you have the same claims history that the defense lawyer has because your client may have honestly forgotten that they had a prior claim or your client may think that they don't want to tell you because you won't take their case anymore or you know, maybe they're trying to get away with something, maybe they're just scared, but, you know, getting the same information, you know, if you've disclosed prior medical providers, get those prior records and review them with your client before the deposition to find out whether you have any problems or not, because it's those misstatements that kill you. Right, and, and I think that that's um, actually a relief to some clients because, you know, when you represent sometimes folks who are not very sophisticated, if they've been arrested before, they don't know how the 
the disposition of their case sometimes. Yeah. And so they may not know what the charge was. They might not know the disposition. They may not know what deferred adjudication means and the significance of it. So when they're asked, um, they genuinely may not know the answer of their criminal background. So if you as the plaintiff's counsel have proactively pulled their record and you know what the answer to those questions are, you can help the client you know, understand and appreciate uh, how to answer that question. Sonia, it's been a lot of fun talking about We talk all the time, but it's kind of fun to talk in this environment. Uh, I hope we answered some of y'all's questions on depositions. If you have any other questions or something you'd like us to talk about, send us an email, uh, podcast at triallawyernation.com, or go to our Facebook page. I look forward to having you next week with us on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide. Are you an attorney with a catastrophic injury or wrongful death case you'd like to discuss with host Michael Cowan? If so, you can reach Michael by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to michael at cowanlaw.com. We look forward to talking with you again soon as we continue to explore powerful insights from our amazing host and remarkable guests here on Trial Lawyer Nation. Until then, please be sure to subscribe and review this podcast on iTunes or your favorite listening app so we can continue to reach more listeners. Visit us at www.triallawyernation.com to send us a message, listen to previous podcasts, or learn more about Michael Cowan and our guests. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors, and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.